You would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 15, as we continue seeing how uh, the author of Hebrews, who we don't know, uh, a name is lost to history, but the author of Hebrews knew well his audience, the people to whom he was writing, uh, communicating to them that Jesus is far greater than any other hope, any other resource, any other shelter, any other belief that we might seek out. And this was especially important to his audience who were being persecuted and driven away because of their faith in Jesus and facing the temptation to leave their faith and find something easier, something more acceptable. The author of Hebrews says you will find nothing, nothing that satisfies, nothing that meets your needs apart from Jesus. So as we look this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. I'll be reading verses 15 through 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been with us the past several weeks, you recall that we've been going through these chapters of Hebrews that that uh, set up and contrast the difference between Jesus and the Old Covenant of the Old Testament, but also the continuity, the way that Jesus is a fulfillment of everything that that Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was promising and talking about. But we get to one aspect of that covenant that many of us might begin to feel uncomfortable with, and it can be summarized by the question, why so much blood? Why is the Old Testament such a bloody affair? Why all this talk about sacrifice and death and blood? At the very least, can we not just move past it since it is an Old Testament phenomenon and we exist in the New Testament times? Or better yet, as modern people and less primitive, less uh, brutal than our ancestors, are we not more proper than that? Have we not learned how to talk about and understand these things without getting so gross and messy and bloody? Well, it is true that the worship and the rituals of the Old Testament, which God prescribed, They've been fulfilled in Jesus, and we don't need to repeat these sacrifices and the sprinklings. I don't stand up here every week and sprinkle blood at you and say, this is the covenant. You wouldn't be dressed the way you were if that was going to be a splash zone in the front here. Where, you know, that's, that's not how we operate. That's how things used to be according to God's command. But we still need to understand why God commanded it to be that way, why it was important, what it was teaching, And how Jesus fulfilled even those acts of covering things with blood. 
Verse 21 reminds us in the same way, he being Moses sprinkled with blood both the tent and all of the vessels that were used in worship. It wasn't just a let's kill the animal quietly and tell you there was blood. They would take the blood and sprinkle it everywhere for all to see. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything had to be purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of the people's sins. And the reason for that we learn in the Old Testament is, for example, in Leviticus 17, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The blood shows that a life has been given. The blood shows that a death has taken place. So it's not really the blood that is central in itself. There's no magical or spiritual quality to that, that liquid. It is death that matters. Blood shows us death. And so the death, and therefore the blood, that God requires is not something that we merely have to tolerate but rather something we are told to rejoice in, even as we did this morning, singing what to someone who had never known a thing about the Christian faith, if they were to walk in and hear us singing as we did this morning, oh, precious is that flow of blood that makes me white as snow. Those words don't make sense to ears that have not heard the gospel. We are to rejoice in the blood because the blood shows us that through the death of Jesus, God has already done everything that was necessary in order to make sure that God's children receive the good blessings that He has promised them. Because there are two things that a death shows us. The blood shows us that a death was required of you and that an inheritance was promised to you. Let's first look at a death that is required of you. In verse 15, a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. To understand the relationship between death and covenant, we have to go back and be reminded of how covenants work. When you would engage in a, today, in, in our times, when you engage in a contract with somebody, what is the verb that you use to describe the official act of completing that contract? You Sign it, right? I signed a contract. I signed the mortgage. I signed those documents. Because we show our commitment to a covenant by signing our name. But in ancient Hebrew, when you would make a covenant with someone, the verb that they used was not make a covenant. It was to cut a covenant. Let us go and cut a covenant together. And the reason for that was very simple. Instead of signing a piece of paper, they would cut animals in half when they would make an agreement or a covenant. Because a covenant is not an agreement that you can take lightly. It is a commitment of your life to something. And so both, animals, uh, both parties in the covenant would, would cut animals in half. And they would make a path between those pieces of the animal and they would together walk through them, saying symbolically and also verbally at times, may this be done to me if I don't uphold my promise to you. May I be cut apart 
May I be torn apart. So help me, God. May lightning strike me from heaven if I am not telling the truth. We, we carry on this idea uh, today. You know, cross my heart and hope to die. It's a very morbid children's way of saying the same thing that they would say in a covenant. May this be done to me if I don't keep this promise that I am making to you. A covenant was a very serious, serious promise. You were staking your life on that promise to uphold it. So much so that when the Lord called His people into a covenant with Him, He said in Deuteronomy 30, verses 19-20, through 20, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast to Him, for He is your life and your length of days. When God gave His commandments to His people, He didn't just say, here's some good ideas. You know, here's a way of living that will make you better than other people and you can feel superior to them. Here's something that's going to work a little better for you. No, He said, the options that I give you when I'm making my covenant with you, my promise to you, is that you will choose my way and live or you will reject my way and you will die. Those are the alternatives. And He begged with His people, choose life. Follow God's way and live or follow your own way and die. He's showing us that following our own way, living our own path is not an innocent but silly choice. It's straight up rebellion. It is the definition of sin. And he tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. If we don't understand this, then we fail to understand sin. When we talk about sin, it's not enough to just feel sorry about it. It's not enough to say, we'll start over and we're going to do better next time. We're going to turn over a new leaf. From this day forward, I'm going to be a better person. It's not enough when we think about our sin to simply say, I'm going to be better or I am better perhaps than most people I know. If you, if you lined us all up, and compared us, I am on the side of the good people. I'm, I'm one of the good ones. Even though I've done some bad things, overall I'm better than most. Or the balance of my goodness outweighs the balance of my sin. And therefore I, I don't worry about my sin. It's not enough to try to give to God in order to overcome that rebellion. It's not enough to bargain with Him that you'll, you'll offer Him something or do something. It's not enough to beg and plead that He would not be just and not treat you as your sins deserve. The path of sin leads to one place and one place only. The death of the sinner. Nothing else would suffice. And so the blood of the covenant that was sprinkled everywhere reminds us that we are in a position of breaking our covenant with God. And of being under the judgment that that brings, a sentence of death. And yet, all throughout the history of God's people under this covenant, He would repeat the same beautiful message over and over. That salvation will come by a substitute. By one who dies in your place. Think of Abraham as he was called to sacrifice Isaac and they go up the mountain and Abraham, not understanding God's purposes and not understanding why God would ask such a thing of him, Abraham takes his son up to the mountaintop and is ready to sacrifice him. And at the last moment, the Lord stops him 
Does a sacrifice still take place? Absolutely, yes. Because the Lord shows him a ram that was caught in the thicket and the ram was sacrificed. And Abraham called that mountain, the Lord will provide. Because God provided a sacrifice, a substitute in place of Isaac who was to die. Or think of the the Passover as God's people were in Egypt waiting to be delivered. And God declared that His servant, His angel of death, would come through the whole land and strike down the firstborn of every single household from the highest of the high in the palace to the lowest of the servants to the livestock in the field. Every firstborn was going to die under God's just and righteous judgment. And yet, God showed His people that if the blood of a lamb was on the door, a substitute that died in the place of the firstborn then death would see that blood and pass over. God was repeating this beautiful message again and again and again that though you are doomed to die, salvation for you will come by means of a substitute, a sacrifice that will die in your place. And so... The first covenant, the system of the Old Testament that God gave His people reminded them again of this fact in verses 19 and 20 when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses. Every rule that we could not obey, every every standard of God of how we ought to live and love and believe and think and do. Every law had been declared by Moses to all the people. After that, he then took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book of the law and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. That blood reminded them of two things. It reminded them of the covenant that they were obligated to obey or else to die. But it also showed that a death had already occurred. A sacrifice had been made on their behalf so that they might go on living even though they had sinned and deserved death. So verse 22, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Every time the Lord showed His people a substitute death, He was directing their hopes to the moment the moment that the sins of His people would be taken up by the great substitute, Jesus Christ. The former covenant promised that. It was a shadow of that. It was a prediction of that in symbol and in shadow. But verse 15 said that, says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Before, worship was about showing how God would one day fix the problem that we had made. But the new covenant in Christ actually shows how the problem has been fixed. The new covenant in Christ fixes the problem in this way. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, God made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not just have our sins forgiven, but be made righteous as if we had never sinned, as if we had never broken the covenant. You have Jesus who perfectly keeps the commands, the laws of God. We are treated as if we have that level of righteousness and He takes on Himself the sin. Which is why the author of Hebrews says in verse 15 that a death has occurred. A death has already occurred that redeems God's people from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. 
So what do we do with this? Well, one thing is we don't take sin lightly. When I am uh, needing to measure out discipline to my children, one thing they're starting to learn is that the severity of what they have done, they can tell how serious it is based on how serious the punishment is. Something that they may have thought was no big deal, but which mom and dad understand is a, is a serious thing. Something they need to understand the seriousness of it. You know, they knew they did something wrong. They knew they shouldn't have said that to their sibling or they shouldn't have, have, have said that to us in that way or done what they did. And, and they expect a little punishment, you know. They expect that, okay, you don't get, uh, you know, you don't get any dessert tonight. Or you, you, you know, you're gonna get, uh, some free time taken away. And then we come in and we, we give them a punishment, a discipline that is far beyond what they expected or anticipated. And you can see the eyes go big. The whole week? What? And that gives us the opportunity to, to explain. You don't understand how serious this is. You don't understand what you've done, and we need you to know how serious it is. And that's what the blood does. The blood reminds us that our sins against God are not to be taken lightly. They're not a minor thing, as Randy, I think, said in our uh, confession of sin last week. Our sins are not just oopsie-daisies. You know, They're not small little things that we can just ignore and move on and patch over little cracks that we can, we can plaster over. The whole thing has been shattered. The fact that a death is required of you should tell you how serious it is to sin against the living God. The blood of Jesus reminds us that our sin is such a big problem that nothing can fix it except death. So don't try to patch up your problems with, with good behavior, pretending things aren't so bad, or by trying to act spiritual enough so that you can quiet your guilty conscience. And don't expect and teach others that they can work their way out of their sinful state before God. Through laws, through rules, through morality, through warning them, through offering behavioral modification ideas. That is not what saves the people that we love and care about because their sin is too serious to be fixed by a simple law or practice or rule or code of morality. Point your heart and point the hearts of others to the only possible solution for their sin. The blood that was necessary because a death is required. Point them to Jesus. The only possible way that God's just requirements can be satisfied because a death is required. But in the next verses, the author goes on to do something that is both clever and maybe confusing. Confusing because he's doing a word play in Greek, which most of us are not going to catch. Uh, and there's just no way to translate it into English. Because in the language that the author of Hebrews is writing, in the Greek, uh, the word diatheke is the word for covenant, which we've been talking about. That, that holy, binding, life-staking agreement that you make. It means covenant, but it also means testament or will, which is why we have Old and New Testament for the record. But a will, like that you write to somebody, or that you write to declare what happens to your stuff when you die. Uh, having talked about the covenant that God makes with his people, that diatheke, that use of the word, he then picks up on the other meaning of the word almost playfully, almost whimsically, 
to show that death, signified by blood, has another purpose. Not just to satisfy the requirements of God because death is required, but also because an inheritance was promised to you. And so in verses 16 and 17, he says, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. If I had taken my parents' last will and tried to cash in on all that that entailed and, and get the leather jacket and the Beatles album and the set of 50 state U.S. quarters that you know was left to me in the will. If I tried to cash that in, in fact, when we try to cash it in, a death certificate is required to verify that this person is dead. You can't cash in their will while they're still alive. It doesn't work that way. It's called a last will and testament, not a for right now will and testament. A will is an official document that tells how you want to bless other people after you die. And so death is necessary for us to receive our inheritance from God, the author says in verse 15. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called, so that they might receive the promised eternal inheritance, which might seem like an odd change of topic. But as we follow it through, it makes sense because from the beginning, God made promises to his children using the language of inheritance. All throughout the Old Testament, he promised an inheritance to his children. He, and, and even in through the New Testament, we are called heirs, inheritors, co-heirs, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. And though at times, especially in the Old Testament, he was talking about a physical inheritance, using that word to talk about the promised land that he was going to give his people and had given his people. Even that was just a hint of the real inheritance that God was preparing for them. In Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion. And that word means inheritance as well. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me. The boundaries of my inheritance have fallen in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is that inheritance? The Lord is my cho chosen portion and my cup. The Lord is my inheritance. Though God gives us many blessings. The greatest gift he gives us is himself. Everything else points us to that. And so in 1 Peter, as the apostle reminds the church that according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So being born into a new family, we now have what? A living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead and an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, unfading. Anything on this earth that we could inherit would be perishable, defiled, or fading. But our inheritance is kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It's very appropriate to speak of God's promises in terms of an inheritance. Because consider, what's the difference between an inheritance and a reward? Now, hang on, I know that the Bible talks about rewards as well. But consider for a moment the ways in which an inheritance is better than a reward. A reward is given to you based on what? Your performance, your accomplishment, your success. 
the first one to cross the line, the one who does the best on weekly sales, whatever it is, you get a reward for your performance based on how well you do. Which means that if you don't do well enough, there's no reward. But inheritance is not based on what you do. It's based on who you are. Your relationship to the one giving the inheritance. So when we talk about our promised eternal inheritance, the focus is in our relationship to the one who wrote that will, that testament, that that covenant, who put us in their will that we might inherit. And we are children of God. The Apostle John describes it this way. To all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. See what love, what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and that's what we are. That's why our confession of faith this morning was not arbitrarily chosen Randy puts great thought as he structures these services. And our confession of faith from Ephesians 1 reminded us that that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything that God gives us to bless us, wisdom, strength, acceptance, forgiveness, holiness, boldness, abilities, provision, Honor, I could keep going on. Adoption, joy, hope, victory. Everything God blesses His people with is not something that Jesus just tells us how to get or shows us how to get. Jesus is not a guide that leads you to those things. Every blessing that God gives you, He gives you in Jesus. If you don't have Him, you have none of God's blessings. But you have an inheritance Because you have Christ. And so we are reminded in 2 Corinthians 1 that all the promises of God are a yes in Jesus. Which is why through Jesus we say, Amen to the glory of, of, to God for His glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So let's come back to the question that started it all. Why is it all so bloody, though? Why do we have to have all this talk of blood and death? Well, the blood tells us that a death has taken place that guarantees the inheritance that was promised to us. How great is the love of God that He would go to such lengths to ensure that we benefit. That Jesus would lay down His life not just to save us from condemnation. He does that, but He does more than that. The death of Jesus does not just save us from God's wrath, though that is amazing in itself. God wants more than to spare you from hell. He wants to pour out His abundant blessings on you from now through eternity. And if He is willing, if God has shown His intention and His willingness to go to such great lengths, the death of Jesus Christ then why would we fear that something in our life would not be taken care of? Why would we seek shelter and security in the words and promises of man? The blood of Jesus reminds us 
that we do not need to fear because God will do everything He needs to do to make sure that we receive the blessings that He promises us. And so Paul writes in Romans 8, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God has given you His Son. God has given you one who laid down His life on your behalf. What would He then deny you? What could be greater than what He has already given you? The answer of Scripture is nothing. Nothing. No protection, no security, no comfort, no sense of belonging, no daily need, no eternal need will be denied you if God has already given you Jesus Christ. You know, next Sunday, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper together. And it is wise for a believer to spend some time before then examining their heart and preparing yourself for receiving the Lord's Supper. And I think that this passage in Hebrews perfectly prepares us to do so. It first reminds us of the role that blood played in the Old Covenant in verse 19 and 20. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book of the law itself and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. The blood would be sprinkled on the people. And I want you to note what they used. It was hyssop. Once again, our confession of sin this morning was not arbitrary. It was taken from Psalm 51, where, Jesus, where David says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And some of you confess that and go, what's the deal with hyssop? Why does hyssop do anything to clean us? It's because hyssop would be the branch that was used in the Old Testament to sprinkle the blood of the covenant that made the people clean. And so what David is saying in that confession and what we had you confess with us this morning was, by the blood of the covenant, make me clean. I can't do it myself. I need the blood of the covenant to satisfy the death that God required. The blood sprinkled over them reminded them that cleanness, forgiveness of sins came only one way. The death of the substitute sacrifice. And it called them to trust that and to rejoice in that, that the work had been done for them. But now look at those words as they're echoed at the Last Supper. In Matthew 26, Jesus took a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is... My blood of the covenant, which before was sprinkled on the people and now is passed around for them to share, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant, without which there is no forgiveness. As you meditate on that this week, ask, do I trust that the blood of the covenant is all that I need? Or is my heart still searching for forgiveness for acceptance, for rescue, for assurance, or for something else that can only be brought to me by the death of a substitute sacrifice. And so as you meditate on the blood that was once sprinkled and is now shared, 
The blood that satisfies the death that was required of you and guarantees the inheritance that was promised to you. Let go then of your insecurities. Let go of vain striving to earn your place. Or as we are about to sing, shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice on your behalf appears. And so people of God, when you consider the blood, when you consider the blood that was sprinkled everywhere in the Old Testament and is now passed around to God's people and placed before your thoughts regularly, let your soul arise, rejoice, and live confidently because of the blood of Jesus. Why so much blood? Because it is the only way that you are saved, the only way that you receive the promises of God. And because there is blood, you need not doubt or fear because the death has already taken place that secures all those things for you. Let us rejoice in the blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that on our behalf appears. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. So precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. No other fount I know. There is nothing else that will satisfy the demands of a holy God who punishes sin with death. And yet a death has occurred that forgives our trespasses so that we may receive the promised eternal inheritance. An inheritance we receive because our good and loving Heavenly Father has sent one who dies in our place that we may receive it. Make us mindful of these things, Lord, that we may not seek our position, our peace, our security, and anything else, but instead live joyful, bold lives as those who have been forgiven, as those who have already their promised eternal inheritance. Because of Jesus Christ, we are able to pray these things. And so in His name we pray. Amen.